But if you don't have the psychological safety in any environment, whether it's at work or in your family or on social media, if you don't have this psychological safety to be yourself, you won't be yourself. The intention, at least, is to create a container for the expression of wholeness and not for some like woo-woo, I don't know, retreat vibes type work environment. That's not the point. The point is to win more games or grow a business or whatever. And it just so happens that uh, there is an intersection with high performance groups and the requisite environment that allows you to show up and give a best effort. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Mindset Rx and your host. And I believe if your goal is to be the best athlete possible, you shouldn't run from your emotions, but rather get to know them better. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. It's how I respond to it. You are not your emotions, but you can't discount them either. In those moments of fear, rage, love, or even side-splitting hilarity, you can't deny those emotions are as real as the headphones you're listening to this podcast through, whatever is in your visual field. You feel your emotions whether you like it or not, and emotions sway you whether you like it or not. We often get into mindset training because our emotions have too much of a say in our life. Your fear of standing out prevents you from truly committing to training or leaving it all on the floor in a workout. Your anxiety prevents social connection. Your nerves ruin your competition or qualifier performance. Due to its popularity and effectiveness, the Stoic framework provides a great starting point to getting a handle on these emotions. Quotes like, if you are distressed by anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself, but to your estimate of it, and this you have the power to evoke at any moment, are often misinterpreted in a way that suggests we should be removing our emotions. Your emotions serve a purpose though. Disgust means you probably shouldn't eat that food. Doubt is a good sign not to trust someone or creates gratitude. If we dismiss our emotions entirely, we lose sight of a highly evolved skill set which gives us a unique advantage. Subtle emotions give subtle clues to what we need. Left to run amok though, emotions destroy us. There's a middle ground to seek them. This middle ground is one from which we can observe emotions without becoming immersed in them. The goal is to get to a point where frustration doesn't ruin any more of your workout than it needs to, and where confidence doesn't lead you to blindness of your weaknesses. You want to be able to use your emotion as indicators of truth. Your emotions are telling you something that the reptilian part of your brain knows to be true, your more recently evolved brain structure hasn't caught up with yet. Viewed through a purely evolutionary lens, your emotions exist because they serve a purpose. Otherwise, they would have been wiped out of existence tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago. 
Your job is to see them for what they are, indicators which may or may not be trustworthy. In this conversation with Logan Galbraith, we discuss the limitations and nuance of emotions, as well as how to hold the standard of success, Logan's journey of mindset and what he's learned along the way, psychological safety and self-expression, developing awareness, the five different perspectives you can view any scenario through, what a great culture looks like and how to develop it, and kind of off topic, why the Sphinx may be thousands of years older than the experts think. Logan is one of those people who connects me to this deep level of awareness where I make connections I wouldn't usually make. And because of that, he holds a, a special place in my heart. So I thoroughly hope you'll enjoy this conversation. Logan, welcome back to the show. It's um, such a pleasure to get to speak to you again. Yeah, I've been excited. I've been excited for this. Uh, we've been due for another conversation. It's been literally years, I think four years since we spoke last. So um, it's been a good amount of time. Um, I want to start somewhere that I know we just plotted out the conversation arc a little bit. Um, but talk to me about Egyptology. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm obsessed with Egypt. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Well, actually, I do know why. Um, are you familiar with Robert Schock and his work at all? No, I'm not. Basically, he's a geologist who has an incredible theory that, uh, you know, let's say that the least controversial version is he observes the erosion, specifically like water-induced erosion around the base of the Sphinx as specifically only possible from extreme top-down flooding, which means that this man-made structure, at least the base of the Sphinx, which we know has been remodeled and repaired and whatever many, many times, um, is something like at least 6,000 more years older than we are claiming. And... You know, I can tell the second part of this theory in a second, which is uh, really profound if you just do nothing other than do the mental experiment of believing it for a second. Um, but I think the reason why this has made me quite obsessed is uh, we're already in a worldview that, view, that uh, perceives things like the pyramids and um, these massive structures in Egypt as improbable to build at the time scale that we've provided. So if you take this improbable thing and then break your, your brain and push it back thousands more years, it really starts to challenge our belief system. Uh, so specifically when you consider the second part of this theory, which is that there was a mass extinction, not from a, impact of a comment or something like this, but rather from uh, likely a solar event, like a solar flare. Um, he references a mild to the order of like hundreds of magnitude less than what he believes happened, whatever, some 15,000 years ago. Uh, happened in like the late 1800s. Uh, 
and it was um there wasn't much infrastructure in terms of like technology but there were like these telegram telegraph sorry stations that all like burst into flames and and became obsolete uh this is all stuff that's very um, googleable uh, and he said if an event like he's proposing happened in a society that looks anything like ours uh it would have resulted in these like global lightning storms fires subsequently um radiation poisoning so any mammal of any size exposed for more than a few days would have perished and so well what does this mean it means like there's a potential that we had a, a pretty organized progressive society that was eradicated by a thing that wouldn't have really left a lot of like physical evidence and then who survives that right well the, the people that survive it are the people who either on purpose or coincidentally took shelter behind stone because they would have survived this radiation thing so then is it a coincidence that at about the same time on more than you know four continents there are cave paintings that essentially are just depicting the same thing and i think you've seen them in the textbook at some point in your life but uh, it's like these they look like stick figures but with like extra appendages or whatever and he's like a, a rudimentary look at this is some sort of stick figure with extra appendages he goes but what i think is happening is that people are trying to articulate this endless lightning storm in the sky in an event that they couldn't perceive as anything other than the biggest event in the history of humanity and these appear in like china and south america and italy and north america and uh surely these folks were not all emailing each other right and so but yet they're making the same cave paintings at the same time uh so it's sort of a paradigm shift to consider that this isn't our first rodeo so to speak and i'm you know you're a smart guy you know maybe i'm halfway uh a smart guy myself uh if if we survive an event like this you know i think i'm on my my like sixth iphone i i'm not making another one of these you know what I mean? I, I've had several cars. I could not possibly build uh, another car from scratch without any infrastructure. You see what I'm saying? And so we would have to like start this this party over again. And um, I don't know. There, there's a lot of humility in shaking the perception that we are the best, furthest along, most capable version of humanity. And I think there's like wisdom in that and past experience that maybe subconsciously in some way we, we don't understand are sort of, it's like the context that we're all in, you know, we're all, I don't know, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but it's like we're 20th generation, something else, right? And 200th generation, something else. How many times has this life cycle happened? And I don't know. But I do know that there's pretty profound evidence that we're not necessarily right about this. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating idea that we are not the 
<laughs> for want of a better term, considering we're talking about floods, high watermark of civilization. Like we're like the the idea that technology could have been different. Um and but culturally, societally, we could have been far more advanced than where we are now. It's um yeah, mind blowing. Lots of people would consider that for a moment and then think, oh, I'd rather not think about that. Why does it captivate you? That's so funny. Yeah, I think you're right. Um well back I used to say this thing when I uh wrote my book. You know, and it's like, what is the obsession about this, this philosophy around how we should spend our time? And like, why is it that you think so, so much and so deeply and so often about what we are doing here? And um, the joke I would make is like, well, what like else should we think about, you know, like laundry? Is that where we're, like, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't seem to care about a lot of parts of life you know uh and and you know when the alternative is, is you know things like this and so i don't know i maybe i'm unique or something like that but um i don't think so i think deep down uh, we do have some part of our brain that's curious about things bigger than laundry and what's for dinner yeah despite that taking 60 percent of my mental capacity on most days what am i going to eat um yeah there's there's definitely that piece in there um i'm going to guess that for as long as you can remember you've always been inclined in deeper questions yeah i think so i think people would say things to me like as a child that i was uh you know quote unquote old soul so I think that comes with that kind of territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Can you remember any stories of being a kid and pondering or ruminating? Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it just goes back to the the point I was making earlier about uh, the, the superficial, you know, sort of very uninterested in that. Um, I mean, the superficial superficial version of what I'm trying to say uh did express itself in my experience in sport you know like lots of young kids want to be an athlete when they grow up but i think i was somewhat unique in how young and how deeply i thought about uh like that almost like existential part of that meaning like i was very almost like in a romantic way tied up in um, like what it would, what I would have to do to become who I wanted to become, you know? And, and like, as a nine-year-old, it, it's like most kids are just like, where's the ice cream truck? You know, how we, you know, what are we doing this summer? Whatever. And I was thinking about like training and, goals and progress and evolution and you know and like how am I gonna leave my mark and like weird things that you know I said one time I, I think I recalled this in an interview once and it's coming up again. I remember being in third grade, not second grade, not fourth grade. I specifically remember third grade 
And I remember saying to myself, well, you know, you only do third grade once. So like, what's going to be my, my legacy here? You know, that was like a weird, like, that's a weird thing to say for at that age, you know? And it wasn't like a weird toxic pressure thing, but it was sort of like, I'm going to try to win the game, you know, like what is winning third grade? And I think that's weird. Now as an older person. Do you remember? Um, I mean, I think the only things that I had in front of me to perceive what winning the third grade would be is um, soaking the soaking up the, the the richness of all of the lessons and doing all the art projects as like hard as I could. Of course, uh, superficial things like getting good grades or, you know, like the interpersonal part of it, like creating friendships. And yeah, it was just, it, it, it was like, do everything to the max. Right. And, um, but I can see from my seat that like, it is maybe a bit bizarre to think about third grade from like a, like a legacy perspective. It's like almost hilarious. Right. I think people get into their, you know, their fifties and sixties and they start to think, what's going to be my legacy you know, or something like that. And um, maybe that's just like blatant egotism uh, as a kid or something, narcissism or something. But, um, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think that, I don't know, if you're asking, I think for me where, where it comes from is I feel so fortunate and capable that it would feel like a, like a crime to not maximize life, you know? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we got here, but I think that the Egypt thing sort of shakes me up because, you know, what if this isn't our, our only crack at this, you know, life school. And, uh, and then like, where like what's our duty each, each time we try this you know get a little further along i don't feel like this is my first try you know i fail a bunch or whatever but i definitely don't feel like i don't know i th- i think that we're 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 in a a, a practice of, of consciousness in some ways and um it feels like the only way to contribute during this particular lifetime would be to like find the edges of that in some way. Mm. When we spoke last week, I think we chatted around and I think maybe this is partly my memory. Maybe it's my, um, my ability to articulate things now and going deeper into this. Um, I think we talked around mindset for quite a long time. I think we talked around mm. what creates your mental state and everything that goes with that. What do you think mindset is? That's a great question. Um, I would say mindset is probably your, your awareness and how you, uh, how you engage with that awareness. You know, like how you're perceiving any particular moment and how you 
right? Because it's not just your perception of the moment. It's it's what you do with that perception. I think, you know, and I'm just sort of going to do this live with you. I think, like, mindset is a, an expression of our perception and how we navigate that, you know, because, because the experiences change, but you, you can bring a somewhat controllable mindset to an uncontrollable environment. Um, two different minds would perceive a similar experience differently. Mindset might be the thing that characterizes those differences, but I'm, I'm not sure. The reason I'm asking is because when I, when I think about you and when I think about preparing for this podcast, I see someone who has done kind of been into a lot of these different avenues. I know last time you're working um, with a therapist, I believe, which typically is more engaging in the emotional side. Um, you have spoken a lot about um, stoicism and mm-hmm. kind of what is it can be seen as kind of like a harder edged philosophy. Um, I know obviously elite sport has been part of your life. Um, now to coaching coaches and building businesses and everything else that you're doing, there's like, there's a lot of different angles to look in at mindset from, um, from a variety of different points on a spectrum. So like, what does, what does all that give you on mentality? Obviously you mentioned like the awareness piece, which would be kind of a meditative approach of like, what is consciousness, but then the engagement in that. And the, I suppose that suggests the fact that you're able to see without the emotional aspect, maybe some stoicism, but also like you're thinking about the emotions as well and you're not dismissing Mm -hmm. them. Um, and that is all to say there is very little question within this, but I find it interesting that you've you've come at come at this from so many different angles and where you're arriving at. Yeah, I think that um, without saying it in this particular way, uh, you're describing or speaking into a progression for me, right? Because if you would have if we would have had this interview in two thousand and four. I would have felt very prepared to talk to you about mindset um, at a different level. Okay. At a singular level to deploy a mindset to get unique, positive outcomes in sport. Um, and I think what you're speaking to is a natural progression. Uh, it's a progression that I talk about in the Hold the Standard Summit, for example, which, which is one about evolution adaptation, which we would like to embody this sort of classic Ken Wilber model of like uh, inclusion and transcendence. So to transcend and include. So in the beginning, let's go to the beginning of how I perceive mindset, specifically from a stoic perspective. Why do I even know about what stoicism is? Well, because it seems like stoicism really helps uh, to perform at a high level in environments of uncertainty because the hallmark of stoicism is a mastery around that which is inside of your control. So I was trying to make a living playing a horrible sport that involves a whole lot of uh, ministry 
and failure amongst ministers. Okay. And so no one is like immune to the failure that is injected into the sport of baseball, specifically on the offensive side. Okay. So there's a, several people that will make 20 to $35 million this year uh, playing this sport and will experience mostly failure. You know, and so there's a certain mentality around that sport that requires you to deploy what is essentially stoicism, meaning you will go mad uh, and ultimately perform less well if you begin to internalize that which is outside of your control, you know, your past experiences and performances, future anxieties about performances, uh, any other parties involved, umpires, opponents, the weather, you know, injustice, how you're feeling uh, mentally or physically, all these things. And so this is where we see a lot of positivity around mindset, uh, but we can find these dead ends. Right? And so I experienced one of the dead ends, which is uh, many times in an effort to to perform at a high level like this, athletes without being coached, by the way, to get to this outcome, and maybe you can relate and you've seen it in others, create this sort of uh, alter ego, right? They put on a sort of cloak to perform, right? And I had that as well, you know? It was like this other person. And it's really a coping mechanism to try to deploy stoicism in what feels like a really risky environment, high performance. I would imagine that folks in the military can relate. Um, they sort of they sort of put their life in boxes, and categorize, um, compartmentalize. And a few years ago, I was able to ask uh, classic mindset coach Michael Gervais. Uh, about this. And I said, from what I know about development, it seems that integration is key and that integration is the pinnacle, right? To bring everything along rather than to compartmentalize. So I, I said, check my work here because a lot of the best athletes in the world em embody this alter ego to perform under the lights. And he actually acknowledged to my, you know, bias that integration is actually um, a more evolved mental strategy than the creation of these alter egos. So, uh, and this is a long-winded way of getting to your point, which is the early younger version of myself, more regressive version of mindset would uh, dismiss things like emotion, feeling, negative mental states, etc., for the sake of stoicism. Later, uh, changing careers, evolving as a human, being exposed to more complex uh, worldviews around mindset, this idea of integration comes in. And I had a, a bout with depression that really challenged me beyond description. Uh, and I realized that the exercise of exclusion and compartmentalization 
works extremely well right until it doesn't. And that um, to transcend and also include the parts of ourselves that we like to dismiss is, in my opinion, the highest strategy. And so in, in this sort of like, you didn't ask me like, which is it stoicism or, you know, um, curiosity about these other parts of us. Um, what I'm saying is that I believe that it's both our call to action is to include all of our parts, which ultimately increases your self-awareness. You know, if you're, if your full-time job is um, performing at a high level, but you also have this, you know, part-time job or, or nearly full-time job, um, not looking at the corners of your life and performance that you don't like, uh, it's, you build a liability for yourself. And you also are generally less aware than someone who can sort of see the entire forest and all of its trees kind of thing. So th there's a little bit of an arc there, it's sort of long-winded, but I, I do think that um, my understanding of mindset has included more than it used to. Yeah. Um, I feel like initially anyway, stoicism was such a useful strategy for myself to get shit done, to get out of my own way and act. Um, and maybe this was myself not applying some of the tool correctly, um, or maybe it's limitation of stoicism, but I found that I developed the ability to stick my head under the sand, not accept some things that are emotional in nature um, to be really destructive after a while. And I also find that as I've made that progression, and this might sound slightly unnerving to those people who really want to achieve um, status or achieve excellence in a certain area, um, especially if it's notoriety or very outcome-based, that as I've found the limitations of stoic thinking, I've also been less inclined to push to win for external validation. And like, as I've gone through that transcendence through those points, so it's almost like it served a purpose to get me moving. It was like a, it was like the carrot in front of, uh, yeah, it was the carrot in front of me that was like, okay, right, this is going to get me to my goals. This is going to get me to this kind of external outcome. But I kind of moved through those and I was like, actually, that wasn't what I was looking for anyway. But an emotional curiosity, as you so nicely phrased it, was what was needed to kind of stop me suffering as much, to be honest, and stop and and aid me in just like in my own mental health at a far deeper level. Yeah. I heard someone say one time, and I'm paraphrasing, and I wish I could quote directly and not even reference the person, but it's like, for what reason should we uh, entertain these conversations? Even like the conversation we're having right now, like, well, well what's the point of gathering these tools to move through the ickiness of life, so to speak, right? Like for, for what reason? If ultimately achieving the goal doesn't fulfill you in the way that you thought it would. And even if, you know, when you, um, when you get to the horizon, there you are and 
and then there's like another heart like what, what's the point of this and then it was sort of like this reverse psychology that i really enjoyed which was you know unless you have unlimited endurance for pain this is an important pursuit right it's like you know maybe Maybe your own develop, like developing your own consciousness doesn't matter at the end of the day, but I hope you have an unlimited abundant reservoir to endure pain. And I think that, that that's it, right? It's like life uh, presents a, a certain universal painful experience and that entertaining these conversations is the most human thing we can do to sort of manage what it means to be alive. And I don't mean that in like a crazy negative way. Um, I, I think it is the thing that connects us all together. You know, it's very difficult to get a room full of strangers together and find common ground on all of our successes, which is generally what we try to do in a weird way, right? We are, we are generally outward facing advertisements for our own success we can't wait to proclaim that show that display that be recognized for that be acknowledged for that meanwhile the only thing that we all have in common is this dissatisfaction struggle pain that is particularly universal and particularly the thing that we all are pretending isn't there you know yeah, whereas like that, that's, the thing that we want yeah. at the end of the day is connection. Like that's what so many of us crave. It is that connection, it, and which would only be satisfied by offering up a more finding the limitations of this word, but vulnerable way of being, like more authentic, I suppose, way of being. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook. How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Yeah, that's right. And so when you see someone else being vulnerable, what's normally the reaction? Well, normally the reaction that I see is that when someone else is vulnerable, the observers of that vulnerability are generally um, very appreciative Mm. uh, of that experience, right? It's like, it comes with a thank you. And oh my God, I'm so inspired. And there's like, like you said, this connection there and like, well, why is that? It's not really for the person who's being vulnerable. It's because the people in the audience wish that they lived in a world where they too could be vulnerable. Right. And so this is the paradox of like, you know, if we saw the world modeled to us that we really wanted to live in, we would all do it. Right. But group dynamics are weird. We, until someone leads in that way, we are all thinking, well, I'm not going to be the one, you know, that's, 
That's scary. Um, until further notice, I will project my best version of myself and hide all of my weaknesses and appear strong by doing really the least courageous thing you can do, the least strong thing you can do, which is um, be unwilling to participate authentically and vulnerably. But when someone else does, golf clap. Oh my God, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Now let me tell you something vulnerable. It's like you just gave a bunch of people permission to do the thing that we all want to do deep mm. down. Yeah. Like the ability that we all have to put on this suit of armor, this protective nature of like, these are my achievements. And I suppose it's the mm -hmm. persona that maybe we're talking about stoicism developing in some areas. Like this is the forward facing me without the union shadow behind it. It's like, this is what I want everyone to see. Like that is something that we've all, developed and rule mastering i think maybe more never with the role that social media plays and i think it's why well to kind of to to flip your script and point you as proof of it um i think that's why people find themselves um connected to you and um attracted to spending time with you is that authenticity that you display like lots of people have been through struggles with depression but not all of them are willing to talk about it. Um, and it's such a, a valuable thing to do, not only for yourself, I think, but for everyone who hears it. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I don't want to necessarily be this like model for that. I think, I think these platforms are bizarre because um, I think our interpretation of what they are for has evolved sort of collectively you know, I think you can look back to like the beginning of Instagram. I remember in the beginning of Instagram, I thought it was just a cool thing that um, made your pictures look different. I didn't even realize it was a social network. So people were like, dude, what are you, what are you sharing that for? Like, oh shit, you can see that. Um, you know, and then it, it was like this fun thing, I think for a lot of people. Uh, and then soon it became really contrived, especially for business people. You know, I remember the swipe up feature, I think changed a lot of our behaviors where it's like, well, this is a, uh, this is for work. And because it's for work, I need to curate this thing in a certain way. And we're all sort of going through that and living the consequences of that. But rather than like make the focus on me, I think we can look to at the, the, the general trends of that um, social media conversation, which if you look at the general trends, as I see them, I'm hoping that the pendulum has swung just about as far as it could swing towards polish and uh, inauthenticity and projection. I mean, I'm sure we have more to go. I mean, we're human beings, right? But, but I do find optimism in what you're sort of seeing now, which is a lot of the content, like people that are trying to make content that you know, to be quote unquote viral, like the people who are like trying to do social media, like and win social media. Uh, what does that content look like? It's like how I made this behind the scenes, how to make a really cool video in five seconds. How did I make this picture look so cool? And it's like the less polished process oriented, rougher around the edges, vulnerable thing. Right. And as that pendulum swings back, because we're all a bit burnt out on like 
face tuned, weird private jet photos, right? Like there's a humanity coming back there. And I think we could use a shift in that way um, because deep down, I think uh, regardless of our behavior, we would all like to live in a world where we could present our truth, be quote unquote vulnerable, et cetera. Um, but if you don't have the psychological safety in any environment, whether it's at work or in your family or on social media, if you don't have this psychological safety to be yourself, you won't be yourself. You know, and that's a lot of the work that I do now is like in talking with businesses and my own businesses is, is the intention at least is to create a container for the expression of wholeness and not for some like woo woo, like, you know, I don't know, retreat vibes type work environment. That's not the point. The point is to win more games or grow a business or whatever. And it just so happens that uh, there is an intersection with uh, high performance groups and the requisite environment that allows you to show up and give a best effort, you know, if, yeah. if you and I are going to try to accomplish something nearly improbable together in business or sport or combat or anything like that, uh, I think anyone listening could agree that our best chance for success is to create an environment where you can try your very best and risk failing in doing so because that's what trying your best at the hardest stuff looks like. And the same is for me. But if you and I create an environment where it's not worth it or it's too risky or it's perceived as dangerous to try your best and ultimately fail or attack things at the edge of your ability, rather it pays to stay more closer to a comfort zone, higher success rate thing. Um, one thing is certain, we may feel better about that, we may feel safer, but we are absolutely not performing at the highest level. Yeah. yeah. At surface level, we definitely feel safer. Like that's the suit yeah. of arm thing. It feels like we're protecting ourselves without, without that risk. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely insulating as well as protective. It's like protects you from the first things, but it's like insulates you from the, the real connection that you are seeking in the world. When I was, um, I was at a recent seminar with Ben Francis, who's the um, founder of Gymshark, um, the, the clothing brand that's yeah. kind of, doing some pretty doing okay. things right now yeah they're doing right i think they're like a billion dollar valuation or something and uh, they're doing okay um they uh yeah he um he, was he gets the about, egg when he gets avocado toast he gets like the extra egg on there yeah, <laughs> yeah i think so i think he does yeah, it'll <laughs> be two more pounds so i'm like you know what i think i'm gonna go for it he um he was talking about the idea that you just got to grow at the same um, the same speed or faster than the business that you're developing. And I think that applies to whether we're coaches as well, or whether it's we're applying to being athletes. It's like, yeah, like you've got to grow fast in the results that you want, like personally and emotionally, and that will drag things up. I think lots of people hope that if they aim at success, I'm sure it works to some degree. Like if they, if they aim at success, hopefully it will challenge them and forge them into um, the person along the way. But, I think it's probably more so the other way around that the results follow the personal growth rather than the growth following the person, uh, the results. Yeah. I, I think to back up what you're saying, uh, a way that I often 
talk about it is, you know, I'll go into a, a room of people that is full of what they would call themselves uh, like leaders, you know, uh, owners of something or manager or coach or something like that. And I ask them, you know, who here would like to be bigger, more capable, um, have greater leadership capacity than you do right now? And and they all do, like and I do, and I think probably you do. And I think that that is indicative of what you're saying, which is, in part, I think all of the things that we want to accomplish it's like uh, the line from uh, what is that Jaws? Like we're gonna need a bigger boat, right? Like okay, we're you're gonna need to be a more capable leader to accomplish and embody the things that you're trying to do. Like where you're trying to go is gonna require a different dude than the one sitting in this chair, right? And and I think that that's that's at the heart of what the the Jim Shark guy is saying, right? It's like we need to develop the capacity to go on the voyage, you know, uh, and the company that I want to run is going to require someone much more capable than me to run it. So I better, I better get to the building, you know, and, and that's that like development piece. I think that leads the way, not the other way around because, uh, you know, said differently, one of the, the researchers that I respect the most in this field that I've referenced probably as much or more than anybody else is Robert Keegan uh, from the world of uh, adult development and positive psychology. And I mean, I think one of his last books is titled perfectly. It's called um, in over our heads. You know, we are all technically in over our heads, meaning the capacity we need quote unquote or uh, would benefit from having just isn't there yet you know we're living in a world of increasing complexity and we all i think can agree that the complexity of the challenges of the day are greater than that of the complexity of leadership ready and willing to solve them you know and so this is inviting them it's like a cringe word at this point but like the work Right, to develop that capacity. You know, how are we gonna figure this out? What insert problem, you know, artificial intelligence and the ethics of that, or global warming, or the interpersonal dynamics at literally any workplace. How are we gonna figure this out? Like, because the technology we have right now between the ears, the capacity to hold that, it's generally uh not sufficient okay so it's like from a leadership perspective it's it's universally important in my opinion to engage with this development of consciousness because i haven't yet met a person who's just you know they have a uh truckload size container or you know uh uh a handful size problem. It's like the other way around. We got challenges that we just can't hold. Mm. The the way to definitely not solve that problem is ignoring it, acting small, uh, hiding from those bits that are uncomfortable. Uh, 
it seems like, well, it's definitely true that we need to look in and see those bits that we'd rather not look at. How are you doing that on a consistent basis? Like what's your, do you have techniques that, do you have processes that you go through? Are you trying to keep in mind certain ideas? Yeah. So the, the, they're both individual and collective, right? So like I said earlier, um, I, I perceive that my job and the job of anybody who's trying to build a deliberately kind of developmental organization, or maybe just it's you, maybe just one person to be a developmentally oriented individual would require the sort of singular, in my opinion, singular ingredient to drive that uh, change, which is if you're in the business of change, specifically growth, you need disconfirming information, right? So if, if all of the information or the inputs that you seek out or that happen upon you are things that you already believe and are already confirmed in your mind by that own dynamic, no change will happen. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And this is a bit of a paradox because confirming information feels awesome, right? There is no friction uh, and definitely no change around being right. Okay. And so it is ironic that when I go ask anybody in a position of leadership or anybody who is interested in performance in anything, they all want to be different, specifically better, right? So like, well, what then would yield difference, right? It's like, let's look at it from an evolutionary perspective, right? We need uh, a stressor to drive adaptation, right? Well, I mean, we all know how to do this in the gym or, you know, many of the people listening know how to do this in the gym, right? It's like, you, you know, you choose the reps and sets and loads that that uh, demand adaptation. That's like the art of being a coach, you know? Well, there are even more people, because the answer, in my opinion, is all people. There are even more people who need and want adaptation between the ears than they want in their hamstrings and triceps, you know? And so like, well, how do we do that? Well, almost no one is deliberately placing themselves in environments to receive this rich disconfirming information. And a lot of that comes from not having the, the, the scaffolding there, not having the structures in place to do that, not having the safety, right? And this is what you can go back to like the growth versus fixed mindset conversation, right? If you, if you have a fixed mindset in a stereotypical sense from like the work of Carol Dweck, um, you actually avoid disconfirming information like the plague, right? Because that's all bad news. Well, great. You avoid this thing that is the only thing you need to become different, right? And this is like a self-sealing trap that you can never get out of, right? So I've, an- I've just been generally answering your question, but specifically, I can give you some examples uh, around the gym. We have specific times and places where they are 
times and places for specifically disconfirming information. Now, the A plus is that we can create a culture so strong and so committed to evolution that it changes our like water cooler talk and like the unscheduled naturally occurring conversations would include a desire for negative feedback and um, a clear runway to give negative feedback. But we don't rely on that We because it's hard. So, you know, for example, every staff meeting includes a moment in time called the spotlight, which is where we take something that we all participate in and agree upon. And we try to just for a moment uh, make it wrong. Right. So it's like payroll, how we structure payroll. Uh, let's break it. Spend the next 15 minutes breaking that. And then if you come out on the other end and find out that it could be broken, then maybe it should be changed, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if not, then we continue with the best so far structure. Um, other things, we've defined more objectively what excellent coaching is. And so with that rubric, so to speak, we can evaluate uh, our coaching efforts. And so we've normalized the culture where Coaching is evaluated and it is expected to receive not just compliments, but like specific disconfirming information about that. Um, I, in a more intangible way, believe, and it's been reflected back to me, that I can curate people well. So the people around me are not enablers of my bullshit, so to speak. Right. And so. I have folks, diverse folks around me that I highly respect with different perspectives. And the conversations are not this self-aggrandizing ego trip conversations. They're more like, how am I wrong about this? What can't I see about myself right now in this situation? Help me see me, right? My favorite thing to do is I'll sit down with an employee and it's, you know, there's always power dynamics, regardless of your culture or whatever. And, and I say like, what's it like? What am I like? What's it like working with me? How, how can I be better to work with? What's the worst part about working with me? You know, and I think most people haven't created the environment to where you'd get a great answer from that. But I challenge anybody listening, and I'm stealing this from um, my friend, uh, mentor, coach, uh, Dr. Kara Miller, which is she's like, if you took a coworker out to coffee and sat them down and bought them the coffee and just asked that question, what's it like to work with me? And just shut up for the next 45 minutes. You'd hear some shit, you know? But we don't do that. And so it doesn't pave the way for other people to ask the question. We don't really have a great perception of ourself, going back to like self-awareness. And we're all living in this like first person version of the truth. You know, we I'll share a framework. So we, we have some frameworks that help us also unearth this disconfirming information. One is uh, the five perceptual positions, which is really helpful around conflict or negotiation or any just sort of disagreeable moment. 
Uh, once you outline this to yourself and or other people, you, you'll never unknow it. And it's a tool that really works. So first perceptual position is that of self. We spend most of our time looking out our own two eyes, perceiving a incomplete, biased, untruthful version of reality. First, perce- first perceptual position, self. Second perceptual position is that of other, which the corny way to say it is like, put yourself in someone else's shoes. We generally are not equipped uh, or willing to do this because if I was to actually do this with the person sitting across from me, I would embody and understand their value system. I would understand and be coming from the position of having their childhood I would be exactly as tired as they are, exactly as hungry as they are. I would prefer the things that they prefer. I would see the world the way that they see it. Very hard to do. Uh, It's worth the mental exercise. Third perceptual position is that of the observer. So any group or any two people that are in an environment could have someone who is impartial and doesn't know anything about anyone in the group and is sitting behind an invisible pane of glass on a chair observing Uh, from a distance, would be able to see many truths that no individual in that group could see. The fourth perceptual position is that of the group. So when it comes to Deuce Jim, for example, it would be to leave my own awareness and go into the mind of Deuce, which has its own values, its own desires, its own fears, its own experience of any given situation. And the fifth perceptual position is that of our best selves or source or love or God, whatever you want to say. So you can go through any difficult interpersonal situation and invite everyone to sort of go through these perceptual positions. And what it is doing is providing an aggregate of the truth, right? Which is truer than any one of those positions, right? And now just having that like creates a certain environment of being wrong about how you're perceiving something, which offers the opportunity for change. Um, And yeah, so long story short, it's like not just having this worldview of a desire to be better and a desire for disconfirming information, but like building in the plumbing such that you're being delivered on a platter difficult growth oriented disconfirming information in your life yeah the unique thing about humans right is that we can change our environment that's what kind of separates a lot of what we can do from what other animals can do and that is an exact example of how we can do that we can put ourselves in the situation where we have no choice but to grow um because we've in our more conscious um and self-serving moment we put in in place the framework that can help that and that can serve that um the inviting of disconfirming or negative feedback is a necessarily painful thing to do but obviously it's the only way that we can actually grow to see where we're going wrong i think this is why brazilian jiu-jitsu is such a useful tool or it was such a useful tool for me because there's nothing that's more uh, salient to you than being choked unconscious. And it's like, okay, I fucked up. Something actually happened there and I made a mistake. You've got no 
you've got no way of lying to yourself because there's that very primal thing of like, yeah, my elbow is about to snap in half and I need to mm-hmm. tap out and I need to submit to this. Um, it's such a useful tool, but it's rare that we put ourselves in that kind of vulnerable situation where we're willing to be exposed to ourselves and to the tribe. Totally. And there's also layers to that uh, because, you know, what's baked into the human experience is, is positive intent, right? So no per, I mean, very rarely are there moments in our lives where we're like, I am actively fucking up and I am, continually making choices that are ineffective and misguided and quote unquote wrong. Cause we, we come from a place of positive intent, even when we're making mistakes and being, um, mm-hmm. you know, ineffective or uh, in need of behavior change. We're not psychopaths. Most people, right. So we're, we are of the belief that we are doing our best with what we have in the blah, 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 the whole story. Right. So there are layers to what you just said too, because people will get together and be like, Hey, do you want to do the let's work on weaknesses thing? And it's like, okay, we talked about the like pretend one, you know, you know, really got to work on A, B and C. And it's like, meanwhile, all of those uh, relevant parties would never talk about X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. when that's the real concerning that's the real issue so to speak right and there so there are there are ways to sort of like bob and weave from that which is difficult i mean it's not hypothetically hard it is hard to change right and so many times there's a there are layers to that which we're willing to address you know um, this shows up in team environments all the time too i'll give you one more framework it's like and this really, excuse my language, like fucks groups up because just like the last framework, when I tell them, they can't unknow it and they, they internalize and they have to acknowledge what I'm about to say, which is anytime you get a group of people together, uh, especially in a work environment uh, or a performance environment of any kind, there are four conversations happening at all times. The first conversation is the explicit one, which is all of the things that are said in the group explicitly. The second conversation are the things that only can be said before the explicit conversation. So you imagine like a corporate team or something like this, you know, or let's just use Deuce Jim. Deuce Jim, we have a staff meeting tomorrow. It's a marketing meeting. There are conversations that will happen between employees before the meeting in Slack, text message, by the water cooler, whatever, that would never come up in the meeting mm-hmm. for a lot of self-protecting reasons. The third conversation are the conversations that happen after the meeting, right? So the meeting happens and we all agree upon all the things and we talk about the things and give the objectives and then we leave the meeting and then there's the like, how about that fucking idea, huh, Ralph? Yeah. Classic. Stacy again with like a weird comment. Okay. So that conversation is not safe to be made explicit in the team conversation, but is happening at all times afterwards. And then the fourth one is the scariest one, which is the conversation happening in your head that you would never speak out loud in 
to the situation. And the reason why I say this is like there is important wisdom in all four of these conversations, but the only one that can be acted upon and isn't creating toxic protection from this valuable information is the first one, the explicit one. So teams that can make more of these elephants in the room explicit, right, you'd have to create an environment to do that, uh, are able to benefit uh, from the exchange of essentially the type of data that would make for a better team, right? But we sort of aid and abet these corners that we're not allowed to address and uh, is really dangerous. You know, this is the self-protecting mechanism at play. You know? We've spoken about two ways to encourage that negative feedback. One of them has been establish a culture around you or a community around you that reflects things back on you the other one has been a, i think aim at challenging things is a is a way of putting like aim at excellence push yourself mm -hmm. find your limits are there any other ways that you have in mind that facilitate this negative feedback uh i think those are those are the two big ones because you know they both invite uh you know, failure and and a naturally occurring feedback loop, so to speak. Uh, but I will add on to this, and anybody who's listened to me talk uh, knows what I'm, I'm about to say, is like there are two required ingredients for any of this to take hold, which is, and it's almost like uh, there's there's correlation between the, the greater you, the greater presence of these two ingredients, the greater potential top end performance. And they are trust and willingness. Okay. And so you can put yourself in an environment to chase excellence, or you can create a culture around you that'll give you negative feedback. But if there's not remarkable levels of trust in the system and willingness in the system, that uh, feedback won't be heard or acted upon or integrated, right? And so these are a premium. You know, um, many people are willing to quote unquote, uh, you know, be uncomfortable, you know, be comfortable with the uncomfortable do all the hard things. They'll do 50,000 thrusters, uh, but they will not have a conversation about their insecurities. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's not really being uncomfortable, right? It's like trading one version of discomfort that you prefer over the real discomfort that you don't prefer, right? And so really high levels of trust and willingness are needed for adaptation. You know, like I say that like, without trust and willingness, uh, going to therapy is a just an expensive conversation. You know, it's like we need to have these ingredients for adaptation to occur. Yeah, like I was, you've put me into a to a self reflective mood, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, yeah, the the piece that keeps on getting me is the idea that yeah, I can reflect on my own i can try and encourage my own negative feedback i can try and look in and think what am i doing wrong but if i'm always seeing it from the same lens then 
it's never going to change. Like the analogy about if I've got a statue in front of me and I'm looking at it from one vantage point, for all I know, it could be a very good 2D model. It requires me to walk around it, see it from different angles to establish that A, it's a statue and B, what it looks like from all angles and therefore see the the truth of it. Um, and that culture community piece is a huge part of that. Like, um, personally speaking now, I'm very good at putting myself in challenging situations as much as I know. Um, but encouraging the culture is probably the more uncomfortable step there because you're inviting negative feedback and discomfort on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think that, um, there's more complexity here that's probably, you know, a whole other podcast in and of itself. But part of this ongoing, I think the way you said it is great, like with the uh, the statue, being able to see it from different vantage points. Because uh, the, the act of change behavior or adaptation is specifically one of adaptation. And that, generally speaking, is not a process fueled by information. So yeah, you can get feedback and whatever, and it's great. But, you know, think about how many change behavior issues are persisting, not for a lack of information. So you have had direct experience with this, with your clients and maybe yourself and people in your life. Um, how many people do you know that are trying to lose weight have the information that would help them lose weight? They have the diet. They actually are an expert in five different nutritional strategies that would yield these results, but some other things in the way, right? Um, in the summit, I sort of realize all around the world that there are not that many different problems like core problems it, like real barriers to people's lives you know um, one of the ways this is manifested is people don't start what they finish they're chronic procrastinators they don't execute okay well even the people who are telling me about this problem of procrastination and an inability to finish what they start do you think it is because they don't know that it would be better if they finished what they started? Like they're not of the belief that procrastination is serving them. Right. And so what are they going to do? They're going to hire me to tell them, Hey, you should finish what you start. Oh fuck dude. Thank you so much. Like now I'll just do that. Right. And then I just like pour gas on the fire and I'm like, okay, what if I, you know, I printed out, you know, 800 pages of scholarly research that proves that finishing what you start is definitely better than procrastinating. You read through those and then just change your behavior. Of course not, because it's not a matter of more information. Okay. So then this gets to, you know, the complexity of what is probably a whole nother podcast, but adaptation would require the person with the problem to evolve, to be a new person, to solve it. You know, and so we really run into trouble. And I don't mean this as a discount to your podcast or anybody else's, but it's like 
you know, our greatest challenges will not be specifically solved by reading another book or listening to a podcast or hiring a coach. You would have to, yeah, like definitely do those things, but you would have to do something about it. You would have to do the adaptation part. And that is not a thing that you can outsource. Yeah, exactly. Um, We used to get quite a lot of people coming to, to work with us and they knew that on a physical level, they had to put the sets and reps in. Like it was obvious to them. It's like, okay, if I'm in the gym, I have to put sets and reps in. I have to increase my volume or my intensity or change variables, or I have to change techniques or whatever it is. I have to put the sets and reps in to create that, that hard wide pattern. But there was a, thankfully it's changing now, but there was a proclivity to think, Oh, you know, by hiring a coach, that is my mentality is going to change now. That is the the change I'm going to create is going to be solved. That it's like no, you have to put the sets and the reps into. You have to physically go through and mentally go through those practices of thinking the thoughts you want to have, of of changing those, of of generating perspective on your emotional state. And that's the thing that is well, yeah, it's it's hard work, right? It's actual effort. It's um, it's a somewhat stressful, although hopefully you stressful as opposed to distressful. Uh, intention or yeah sensation on the body stimulus on the body so like hopefully that's changing it um there was a piece that you were talking about back then about um about shutting off data points um and i think that's the limitation of stoicism that we're bringing we're talking about right at the beginning to to finish off the loop i think that's like i felt like at some degree and maybe this was my incompetence with stoicism because occasionally i haven't been 100 percent perfect in everything that i've done um i yeah might have been shutting off those those data points and, and not giving myself the opportunity to see my life from ah oh, these are the emotional perspectives that actually are a part of my life and are dictating my results and are dictating everything else but i choose not to to see them so that was a yeah really nice kind of full circle there totally and it's a paradox, right? Like, you know, the, the tongue in cheek way to say it is you, you can't argue with results, right? So if you, if you are the perfect stoic, but the outcomes in your life are poor, meaning you're an asshole or you're still not performing at a high level or whatever's going on, it's like, okay, well, how's that working for you? You know, like, you can be, a, I make this joke all the time, you can be 100% compliant to the paleo diet and get yourself uh, a fresh case of diabetes, just firing down 20 bananas a day, right? Um, you're following the rules, but you have no results, right? And so it, the paradox of, of leadership or the paradox of performance or the paradox of all these things that we're talking about is you don't get to absolve yourself of the responsibility. You can't just follow the rules and say, Hey, my hands are, are tied here. I did everything I could. Right. Bananas are after all paleo. It's like, okay, well you, you gained, you know, 20 pounds of non lean tissue and you're worse than when you started. So what's the prize here? You know, I think that's a great place to wrap up, dude. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's always fun wrapping with you. You threw me a curveball at the Egyptology thing.
<laughs> that's the intention yeah not looking that's to go fair. down the, sta- the standard route um thank you man where can people find out more about you where can people find out about hold the standard um and your mentorship and everything that goes along with that oh and also actually i'm not going to let you go quite yet um talk to me about um is it voluntary work or you've got some sort of um, organization going? I, I have been spending less time on social media. So uh, yeah, for my no sins, I haven't followed you as much as I, I have been. But yeah, there's been this uh, community aspect to this that you're developing, right? Yeah, we started a nonprofit um, through the gym, which is rooted in leadership development um, called Deuce Community. And we serve three populations that generally overlap quite often, which is system impacted individuals. So folks who are currently or formerly incarcerated, uh, folks experiencing homelessness and or folks who are substance impacted. So seeking sobriety or currently sober. Um, And yeah, we basically find through training programs and collaborations, we find the most motivated, capable people in those communities. And we basically hire them to develop themselves. And so we have, shoot, in the last couple of months, we've had um, three three folks uh, released from prison who were able to work with us with an ankle monitor. So now they have a little bit more freedom, but they're, they're still working with us. Um, the first person who went to the program, David, is now uh, living up in San Francisco. He's a professional coach. Um, did many years in, in prison and he's um, making a, a hell of a life for himself as a leader. And um, we're not stopping anytime soon. That's great. Really nice to hear. Really nice yeah. to hear. And uh, congratulations. Cool. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah. appreciate that. So where, yeah. Where can people find out more about you? Back to, back to that question. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Um, I'm on uh, just, Twitter and and Instagram at functional coach, all one word. The continuing education and seminars, uh, ebooks, all that stuff is at deucegym.com forward slash university. And uh, yeah, not hard to find. I'm around. I like to respond to people. So shoot me a message. Perfect. Well, great place to wrap up. Thank you, man. Thank you. It was awesome. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete podcast by Mindset RX. If you want to keep up to date with the goings on of Mindset RX and get some more brain gains, head over to our Instagram page, which is Mindset RX. That's Mindset RXD. Or make sure you subscribe to our email list, which you can also find on our Instagram page. One more thing before I go. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, um, Apple Podcasts, which is the same thing, uh, Spotify or YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week and I'll speak to you next week with another CrossFit athlete speaking to us.